This is the Head Torch Podcast. Welcome. Our mission, to create a mentally healthy culture at work. Keeping the conversations alive, our podcasts bring you great presenters and stimulating discussion on mental health and well-being in the workplace. Enjoy. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Head Torch, we do all things to help and support organizations to develop, maintain, sustain a mentally healthy culture. So we meet an organization wherever they're at. We work with senior teams, middle management and frontline people, the whole organization essentially. We work with small organizations, large, international, it doesn't matter. Everybody's mental health is important regardless of the size, shape of your organization. And so very warm welcome to this Thursday Wellbeing Hour. So very warm welcome to you. Let me just give you a brief outline of, of how today's session is going to run. We are, Stephen and I are going to basically have a conversation. I'm just going to ask him some questions. And then at some point he will pose you, us all even, a question. And at that point there'll be a great opportunity for us all to discuss and share our thoughts and ideas. There are a lot of us here today, which is fantastic. So I'll be inviting you to put your hand in the in the air, if you like, use that uh, emoji that we all have available to us there. Or equally, if you if you want to put something in the chat, you're more than welcome to do that. If I miss it, then do make a point of of shouting out or something so that I don't miss your your vital question. So let me first of all introduce to you Stephen McAllister. Stephen is a man of uh, many talents. He is former divisional commander with Police Scotland and a police negotiator. He is presently chair of LifeLink, which is a counselling organisation here in Glasgow. I believe we have some people here from LifeLink joining us today. Welcome in. And he is also on the board of the Samaritans and he's on the board of an NH NHS trust. And we are very fortunate here at Head Torch that he's also a senior advisor with us. So very warm welcome to you, to you, Stephen. I'm now going to pass over to you, actually, Stephen, and invite you, first of all, before I start grilling you with some questions, invite you to introduce yourself using a mystery object, folks, a mystery object. I'm just going to stop the share with the screen here. You might find it helpful, folks, just before Stephen does introduce himself, just to place your view on speaker view. So that's top right corner of your screen, you'll find view. And if you place it on speaker view, you'll get a full headshot, hopefully, of Stephen in any second now. Over to you, Stephen. Thanks, Amy. And hello, everyone. Thanks for that very warm welcome. I'm delighted to be here. I don't often get a chance to get people to actually listen to me, certainly not in my own house, so it's a real problem. If you can see my mystery object to my, my left, uh, this is uh, Scindapsis pictus, and it's actually a vine, and it wraps around in the central column, and uh, hails from the tropical rainforests of Southeast Asia. So I like to travel, although that's been curtailed a bit over the last couple of years. But the, the promotional blurb for this, this plant is that there's more to Scindapsis than, than meets the eye. I think I, I would like to feel that there's more than me, more to me than meets the eye. If you, if you came across me, I'm this middle-aged, balding, middle-class white male. And, you know, 
as Billy Connolly would say, they are best avoided really because we've kind of, our generation is helped ruin the planet at the moment. But I'd like to think when, if you had a conversation with me, you 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 would you would keep me in your team. If you were culling the influence of these middle-aged males, I'd like to think you would you would hang on to me because, you know, I I I try not to act and behave like one. And and I think that's my my struggle to to remain relevant. I left the police in, uh, nearly five years ago, and I've been involved in a lot of other things. I think that's my struggle to remain relevant and to make, remain credible and and to contribute. So contributing is very important to me, particularly in the room the the, the public public sector. I, I kind of pick something new every year to try. So two years ago it was a stand up comedy course and. Um, it's a, it's a drawing course this year. I, I will not be coming to a town near you with my comedy any 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 time soon, and certainly I will, will not be having a an art exhibition. But it's something just to think differently, connect with different people, get different perspectives, and broaden one horizons. The interesting thing about this plan is it's among the top ten producers of oxygen anywhere of any plants anywhere, and it's just great as a house plant. Uh, and there's a bit of a symbiosis between me and the plant because it, the plant produces oxygen, but it needs fed, it needs watered, it needs the right amount of light, it needs the right amount of heat as well. So we kind of work together to create conditions in which we can both thrive. And thriving is really important to me, and, and it has been for probably the last 30 years of my life to try and create a condition where I can thrive but also those around about me. I have often failed. It's a continuous journey. It's a journey you have to work hard at. So I have to work hard at keeping this, this plant in good condition as well. It's also a living organism. And we are all living organisms. And, and I, it makes me very aware. And a, and a positive sense of own mortality. We live on average on this planet for 4,000 weeks. It's not a long time. So what we're going to do during those 4,000 weeks to contribute Sadly, for a lot of us, for those that last a thousand weeks, we live in, in some form of ill health. Now, some of that's just unfortunate. We might get injured, we might have a genetic long-term condition. But for a lot of us, it's because we simply don't care, look after our own well-being, either physically or mentally. So we have to work hard at this as well. And, and that's a reminder to me of, of, of having to do that. So that's me and my mystery object Scandicius pictus from the Southeast Asian tropical rainforest. <laughs> that is wonderful. And I'm I'm pleased also to acknowledge that we have one such plant here in the office and looking at it right now. So lots of oxygen abounding, which is always, always pleasant. And uh, so let's let's crack on then. What a fantastic introduction. Thanks, Stephen. Let's start at the very beginning of your career then, when you were in the in the police. You went through a really well, unforgettable experience. Do you want to expand on that? Tell us about what happened. Yeah, I, I suppose. So just prior to joining the police, I studied psychology. And one of the things I became quite obsessed about was what they called abnormal psychology. That was a kind of real batshit madness. This was like Adolf Hitler, Vladimir Putin, Fred West all put together. And I thought to myself, you know, whoa, how do you deal with these people? And actually, through a lot, a lot of my career, I get involved quite advanced and still am and risk management and managing that threat. But when I joined the police in 1987, actually that kind of emphasis and psychology switched 
not to the pathology, but actually to looking at people who'd been to a lot of traumatic events during the course of their career, or also people who were adversely affected by traumatic events with the good news that most people bounce back. So I became really very interested in my early part of my career about how does that happen? What gives people the resilience, knowledge, experience to bounce back from trauma and not become adversely affected by it? And I suppose that very alone in my career, as, as Amy's has mentioned, uh, I was 24 and I spent uh, a period at the Lockerbie aircraft disaster. I wasn't there for long. I was there for just over, over a day. And my attitude to it was both looking at the sheer horror of what I was seeing, but also the fascination about how do you put this stuff back together? Not only it's easy to rebuild things, takes time, but what about the people who become adversely affected by this? And that then became a bit of a lifelong journey for me because on returning from Lockerbie, certainly one of my colleagues took his own life because he simply couldn't handle what he, he had to deal with. And there was another couple of people who had quite prolonged exposure to Lockerbie on the back of, of it really blighted the rest of their careers and it blighted their life. And certainly, I can't prove it, but they died prematurely. And I'm, I'm sure that that had a huge impact on that as well. But the rest of us, or most of us, after a period of readjustment, kind of just bounced back. And I became really focused about what do you do? How do you look after yourselves under such traumatic circumstances? But then how do you look after others? How do you bounce back? And that's become a kind of lifelong thing for me. Because mm. when you were there, what, what was it? What was it you were, you, you said, what, where do I get support? And what was it you were offered? Well, there was, there was really nothing that, I mean, it, you know, there was really nothing for it. We, we asked that, we came back. What, what, what was it? We didn't know. There was nothing. There was nothing available to, to actually even acknowledge what you had gone through. And, and actually some of the, some of the steps that they put in a few weeks after it with on reflection probably did more harm than good. And that became a bit of a concern for me. The only, the only time I had any flashbacks from Lockerbie was when they put me down and, and asked me about it and for, forced me to relive it a little bit. <laughs> Not until then I thought I was I was okay. And then I started to get some flashbacks. Unfortunately, they didn't last for 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 a particularly long time. Yeah. Well, fortunately, most organisations have, have moved on since that time, right? And there's a lot more support and proactive uh, work going on to, to support our mental health. Thanks, Stephen. So, you know, what, what happened after that in terms of skill, skills and, and building up after that in terms of influencing and, and leadership? Where, yeah. where did your journey take you? But as, well, one of the things was, was around about that support you've mentioned and, and we, we, we started to create what we called critical incident debriefing teams. And, and that was a bit of a hit and a miss, I have to say, because some people found it beneficial, uh, others uh, less so. Um, and uh, that subsequently got modified into trauma response incident management. So a lot of... Say that again, that or slowly. Trim, <laughs> it's called trauma response incident management. And police use it, fire and rescue military use it and it's a much more effective way of acknowledging how people have been involved in in a traumatic incident and it 
it kind of scores them on a scale about how affected they are. And if they're off the scale, they can get, you know, uh, immediate support. But it's a bit like watchful waiting. You, you, you keep a weather eye on people. So that's the kind of group care by the supervisors or the managers. And um, they then get rescored a couple of weeks down the line. And if they're still struggling, they can be then given specialist support. But what we've found is that most people recover on their own, which is good. Or if they're given some pointers about where to get some help, and, and it becomes quite preventative because once if you've been undergone one trim session, it, it kind of gives you the access to support. So the next traumatic event you go through, you, you've got a bit of resilience around them. So trim is, is something that we helped to develop. I mean, I didn't develop it, but I was, I was part of a team that started to introduce it in, in policing and, and it's used quite widespread now. Great, excellent. And what, what else then in terms of, of building that influencing and, and leadership skills? Yeah, I mean, I suppose one of, the first reasons, one of the reasons I wanted to join the police, actually, is that you could become a hostage crisis negotiator. And uh, it took me 14 years. It's 2001 before I got on my course. And, and I, 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 you know, and it's something that I did. And I still, I'm still involved in, in a lot of that training and, and delivering some stuff, you know, ac across the globe. And it's fine. I loved it. I, 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 but what I learned from my course is that horses and crisis negotiators are really, really effective at solving other people's crisis for them. And about half the colleagues across the globe of any horses and crisis team are suicide interventions. So this is the point where people have had enough they're going to take their own life and we're 99.9% effective and get people back from the brink. And we do attractive listening skills, empathy, rapport, building influence in a very positive way in order to get a positive outcome. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I was, I was a firstly manager by this time and I thought, well, if you take this stuff that we know that works and, and take it and use it in every day, what you're trying to do, it will work. It will be really, really effective. You have to have the confidence to do that. So as my experience and knowledge through my policing career developed and my skills and experience in hostage and crisis negotiation built up, I just started using the techniques on a day-to-day -day basis and they started to be really effective. Can, as you you go through a, the run, can you give us an example, a specific example of something that you're using in a, in a crisis situation, which is as effective in a day-to-day -day situation? Well, I suppose it, it's, it's, it's what your understanding of crisis is. So a crisis for me might be, you know, I've got man flu because I you know, don't suffer very well. So that's a crisis for me. Uh, a crisis for somebody, somebody else might be that, you know, they've had their car broken into something like that. So, so, so it's understanding that different things have different pinch points and different levels of impact and whether you need to be aware, if you're going to line manage to supervise people, you need to be aware of that. What's a crisis for one person isn't necessarily a crisis for other, but you have to accept that. And I suppose, you know, when I went, I became a commander of the Gorbals in, in the southeast of Glasgow, which was a really tough gig, actually. It was a really tough gig. It was a brilliant place to work. And I've seen a lot of people in crisis, as in my own staff. They were running around, and I described it with their heads on fire, trying to deal with all the stuff that was coming at them. 
And there was some really good stuff going on. But there was lots of other things that we couldn't really separate the wood from the trees. So we started, so in terms of then having those discussions with them or using our active listening skills, the empathy and understanding what they were going through, building that rapport between the teams, then you can start to positive influence about how they deliver their service. And you can start to pick out the things that work and the things that don't work. And I think that's, that's for me, breaking down everywhere I've been, breaking down all the crises that were going on within that part of the organization that I was involved in and start to use influence techniques to give a positive outcome. And you could just see that the levels of performance just increased dramatically in, in, in every other environment that was in. Um, Fantastic. It was sometimes difficult to distill to colleagues and explain what you were doing because it became a very, became part of me, it became a very yeah. natural process for me. Yeah, but, but these, are, these are all skills, aren't they, that we can develop, but it does it does take time. So let's let's move on yeah. to when you first started at Fourth Valley Division. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening there when you first started? Yeah, so it was interesting. I I went through a promotion process, and I think of my cohort when I got initially to superintendent and then chief superintendent was I was the last one in my cohort to get promoted. And, and each head of HR phone me up and he said, yeah, the chief's just waiting for a, for a, for a you know, a specialist job they wanted to do. And I went, oh, really? And um, they then promoted me and they sent me to, to Fourth Valley. And Fourth Valley was an environment It had been its own standalone police force. It was Central Scotland Police. It had a proud history. And it went from being a standalone organization to being one of the smallest divisions in Police Scotland. And they were completely traumatized by it, completely traumatized by what was happening to them. They'd lost their autonomy, lost their sense of control, lost that identity, and they hadn't taken on board the corporate identity of Police Scotland. And they were fighting against it, fighting against it. And all the hallmarks of what you could see in an organization that was assimilating were there. Very high absence rates, really poor levels of performance as well. And, and, and a real, real poor attitude towards, and understandably, towards what was happening because it was being done to them. It wasn't being done in conjunction with them. So... That was, it was slight ball, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so what was, what was your approach? So I think radical acceptance, not, you know, accepting that this was going to be a really tough gig, but also accepting that, you know, all my lifetime experience, I could, I could use the, some of the skills and techniques that would make a difference. I, I knew that it was really interesting. I, I do, you know, and I knew it wasn't going to happen overnight. And about the three months stage, my chief constable's secretary for me and said, the chief wants to see you. And I said, well, she says, right now, can you be here in 45 minutes? Which is never a good thing. Never. <laughs> and I went in and he was really angsty and he'd head HR there. And he was very uncomplimentary about what we're doing and, and what, how the division was performing, you know, he used some 
very choice language. I want the peak here. And I, I tried to explain to him what we were doing in terms of influencing it on the way, stuff like that. And he turned to the head of HR and he said, does anything that man, that man, anything that man's just said make any sense? And I looked at John and John looked at me and John went, says, well, I think actually a lot of the research would say that, you know, Stephen's on the right path. And we get, went outside the room and John pulled me over and he said, I didn't understand any of that either, he said. <laughs> I've just got your back for a while. He says, but it's going to have to improve. I mean, that's fine. I says, it'll work. Just leave it with me. That's the pressure we're under. Because <laughs> when you got there, so, you know, people were feeling that, that lack of control, that lack of autonomy. And there, there were issues, weren't there, in terms of, was it attendance? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, was the highest in Scotland. We're running at just over six percent. And of course, initially, I wasn't the boss. I, I was, I, I was, I kind of was, I suppose, the ex divisional commander and, and old money, as they would call it. I was in charge of support and service delivery, whatever that means. But I was again kind of the glue that kind of stuck everything together. So that was all your absence management, your promotions, all of that. So I had all of that uh, to try and sort out. And so it was quite a good place to be to bring that influence if you wanted some quick hits. So, but you're right, one of the things that was really killing us, we'd lost a lot of staff into national divisions. So we had about 850 staff when I arrived and very quickly we lost 200. And actually they lost 200 of our best people, our best trained people in CID and operational support. We lost all of them to national divisions and so, we had a lot of inexperience left with a lot of people who just didn't want to be there left. And you could just see the, the absence figures going up. So 6% absence was about 40 people off sick every single day. Wow. And actually in a small division of 650 people, you can do a lot with 40 people. You can make up difference with 40 people. And if they're not there, you're struggling to cover what they do. Yeah, um, yeah. So can you drill down a bit for us in terms of this approach that you were that you were telling uh, your boss that he didn't get. <laughs> sure. What, what were some of the what were the some of the nuggets that you were putting in place? Well, well, his quote to me was that my I I hear you know my boss at that particular time I hear he's a really nice guy and he actually was he's the nicest person I've ever worked with right, and he said to me. I don't appoint my divisional commanders to be liked. And I went, ooh. I said, I think you'll find that one of the weapons of influence chief principal is being liked. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. We we seem to think that the boss is, you know, this austere running around cracking the whip. I said, you know, actually being liked it makes your life much easier. I didn't quite add in the bit, you should try some of this. <laughs> that would have been a career-limiting opportunity. <laughs> but, you know, so it's so, 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 and how do you influence people? Actually, kind of, you don't have to be their pal, but actually respect and liking you, honesty and transparency and trust, it's like, makes your life far easier. But when you then started talking about all the other principles that would you use during influence, like empathy, my goodness, speaking to police officers about empathy and rapport and, and understanding what empathy is, because empathy is massive in, in, in any, any environment to try to get people on board to change. 
and it, it's a skill. It's a skill that you have to develop. And a lot of, you know, a lot of leaders I've came across have, have had the empathy bypass, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, you were walking the talk. Would you say? We well, I, mean, I think absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we got to, and and you were trying to explain. So actually, I, my boss changed during this as well because. My previous boss was so nice that, that the chief decided to how come out of the division, you know, and we got we got somebody else, and <laughs> he's caught. He said we need to improve. We need to improve, and I, and I said, "This hold fire there." I said, "When we say to people they need to improve, what what are we actually saying to them? What are we saying to them? We're saying what they're doing already." is not good enough. Since that's a bit of a demotivator. I said, so what we need to do is improve their well-being. We need to focus on well-being. And he says, I don't care what you do as long as the world improvement isn't, and I can say it, I can call it for that. I'm like, okay. I said, I promise you, I will improve their well-being. He went, we'll just leave it at that. I says, because if you improve people's well-being, you got to improve their performance. Yeah, yeah. And their well-being's like there. It's crashed for a whole load of reasons. So I said, it would be difficult to, to build them up in, re- in relation to that and improve their well-being. And he kind of let me go on with it. I said, just leave it with me. Give, and that's the bit about appealing to autonomy. I said, give me a sense of control that, that you're going to leave me to do, to do this. I'm going to crack on with it. Don't you worry about dealing with it with the chief and all that, you just worry about that. Somebody else can worry about the opposite side of things because that takes care of itself almost. Let me do the glue bit in the back of that. And he went, that's fine. So we did. So what were some of the what were some of the glue bits that you put in then? Well, the, the glue the glue bit was I suppose the the well we did we created an improvement of well being with the emphasis on well being and and I think it it was a case that we we went round the division, we got individuals to volunteer to be part of this group. And they were the champions for their business area. And they came with the autonomy to represent that business area. And they could bring anything to that table. As a senior officer in the division, and, and by this time I was just about like, oh, the cusp of being divisional commander. Uh, I would promise that we would do our best to deliver on what they we, they were they were looking for, but they had to they had to bring some solutions with them as well, but with the emphasis that we wanted to improve the well being, and actually we shared the absence figures. We, we 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 said to them, "Do you know we've got nearly forty people off sick in the division every single day?" Do you know that approximately between 16 and 20 of them are have a you know a psychological mental health? We're not identifying the individuals, but do you know that 40% of them are struggling with their mental health. And they went, well, we didn't know that because nobody was sharing that information with them. And they then kind of said, Well, we we need to improve the well, we need to improve the well, we need to improve the mental health. And then we said, Well, what do you mean by well-being? And I said to my boss, I said, what do you think well-being is? 
Anyway, well, you would have low absence and you would have good performances now. I said, you can crack the whip. You can, you can actually drive that down for a period of time. You might not get a lot of longevity out of that, but maybe you're not bothered with that because you're going to move on. You just want to have this nice shiny thing that's going to work for a while till you move on, but it won't be sustainable. I says, go and speak to the cops. Go and ask them what well-being is to them. And we did. I started to get the senior team out. I said, go out. Go in the early shift, go in the back shift, sit down with them and ask them what they mean by well, what's well-being to them. And the stuff we came back where I waited six weeks for a pair of boots, my body armor, which is supposed to be a personal fit, doesn't fit properly. I can't get my days off, me rostered. I'm a community cop in Falkirk, but I find myself working in Edinburgh City Centre on a Saturday night or or working at a football match in Glasgow. I want to play small community. I'm finishing night shift on a Saturday morning and I'm back on an early shift on a Monday. I'm, I'm 44 years of age and I'm knackered and I can't do that. So I need a bit of gap. So it's like, well, there's lots of things that, that are coming back through that initial discussion that we can solve a lot of these things if you just put your mind to it. And so and the kind of 18 months as, as divisional commander and, and chairing that group, you know, we... We put about 100 separate actions through, and we delivered in 70% of. Now, the other 30, we couldn't for either legislative reasons or the executive wouldn't let us, or it just wasn't practical. But we went back and said, you know, we can't deliver on this for this reason, and they accepted it. But actually, good news is we're delivering in all of this. We're delivering in all this stuff. And when they got that sense of of bring, bringing a problem and being able to get that problem solved, it gives that sense of control, that sense of autonomy. And and having a forum, I mean, psychologists call this education. You know, you have Big to... Big word, Stephen. What is it? a forum where people can feel listened to. Yeah. Uh, and that has to be, in my view, face-to-face. I know that's been difficult the last couple of years. A lot of organisations do surveys and... and, and um, are online and annual uh, annual reviews and things such as that. And to say that they're all great, if you act upon them, you've got to get people around the table. You've got to, you've got to have that sense of temperature in the room. And as a leader, I might sit in front of, 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 of one of the group, one of, my, one of my, my, my shifts, and I might get pelters from them because they're unhappy. That's okay. Broad shoulders. Uh, to be able to accept that. But uh, unless they get a chance to tell you how they feel it, are you going to solve any of the problems? Are you going to solve any of the issues? Yeah, that, absolutely. So evocation autonomy, really, really important. Yeah, giving giving people a voice, isn't it? That's what you were totally. doing. You were giving people a voice and it sounds like, you know, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that they were coming back with, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like they were kind of easy fixes. They were. They could then move on. Yeah. They were. And because nobody really listened to them before, they were like, you can imagine them sitting there going, this is this isn't difficult. Why haven't you fixed it already? Yeah. And this has gone on for like probably, so I went there in 2014. This has gone on for two years. So Police Scotland came along in 2012. And two years later, they're going, oh, shit, go this. You will not make my life better. This is supposed to make things better. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's actually made, for me, it's made my life worse. Yeah. And that's not, that's not a good place to be coming from. 
No, no. And now, and now you were giving them the opportunity to to have their voice heard. Fantastic. Let's now. I'm just going to. Steve is just going to share a, a question that which he'd like to pose to everybody here. You can see that there. So just want to. So yeah. So what you're saying, Stephen, is that there's a well-established link between employee well-being and organisational performance. Why is it that many organisations do not give a higher priority to this topic? So we're just going to invite you to throw your throw your thoughts into the into the room. If you'd like to use, as I said, use the maybe the, the hands up signal by your name, the emojis, things, reaction thingies, I think you get them at the bottom of the screen there. And or you can throw your salt into the chat. We've got a few here. Um, the question there is that in the chat, thanks Alison. Cost, Sarah saying. I don't think they truly believe the close link between the two and perceived cost. So, Sarah, Sarah McCann, would you like to unmute and just sell, tell us a little bit more about your, your one word answer there of cost? I like to keep it succinct. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Hi there. Thanks, Stephen, for your um, discussion. It's really good to kind of gain understanding and with your experience um, I'm starting out new within HR relatively new um, so I put down costs because there could be a plethora of well-being issues that can arise so maybe they don't have capability to they, it's fear basically what's going to arise and how they're going to deal with it so best not to address it at all what's on that Stephen <laughs> it's like you know it's like, you know, you don't want to look under the carpet, you know, it's like, what's there? I mean, the, the, the first, I think when you said cost, a lot of people may have went financial costs. So actually, I'll just close that one off first because this did cost me a penny. In fact, it did, it cost me, it cost me uh, about £6,000 that I got from a charity to deliver a head torch product. So that's, so it did cost Police Scotland a penny and they did put, any money into it at all. And even when I was leaving, they, they, although they said that one of their, their two touchstones were operational confidence and well-being, they still didn't fund the well-being at all. But I think your point, Sarah, is really good, is that there is sometimes a lack of confidence of leaders that when they start to probe, it's like, well, well, one, will I be overwhelmed by this? It's like, I don't want to be dealing with everyone's problems. And I think for me, because of my journey and, and some of the crisis management, all the stuff that I've been involved in, I built up a lot of experience. I was quite prepared to have that conversation because actually, once you leave the conversation off and you create a forum, it almost becomes self-healing. So I never imposed on my division head torch or anything. I said to them, here's our issues. What do you want to do about it? And they said, we need to start tackling the mental health and improving the mental health of our, our colleagues. And we need to be preventive. I says, okay, I'll go away. I'll do some research. You do some research. 
we'll put some things to you and we'll vote on what you want you to do. And, and one of the ones you put forward was head torch. And they say, we might look at that and we'll go, we'll go down that path. It's a false economy, isn't it? It's a false economy to think that not doing anything about it is okay. Not putting any money into it is okay. You know, it 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 needs the time, doesn't it? It needs that input. It needs the investment on on every level, because I mean, you know, you yourself said, Stephen, the the absenteeism rates at Forth Valley were through the roof when you first when you first joined there. What what where where were they by the time uh, you'd well, you'd uh, finished there? Well, I was very, I managed to get them down to under two percent when I left. We got it to one point nine percent, which you know a lot. Of, Private sector organisations would be would be chuffed with that. You know, public sector's pretty unheard of. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty unheard of. And a lot of it's the simple stuff, isn't it? Yeah. To get it down to that to that level. Yeah. Um, I think they thought um, we were cheating and not recording it by the end, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think they truly believe the close link between the two. Yeah, just as we've been discussing there. They, do, they don't. They don't. And yeah, this the good goodness. The search goes back to the early 1900s in terms of we know we know it's out there, but I, I, I must be missing out on most of the MBA courses and training. I don't know. She put a module in. Yeah, Claire. Do you want to, Claire Bernard? Do you want to just open up? Your, your voice to us, you've said there, you've made a really crucial point about asking people what well-being means to them. I think companies think they have to come up with all the ideas and they don't have the knowledge to do so. I'm going to say a bit more about that, Claire. Yeah, forgive me, because I'm sure you've made lots of really, really key points, but that's an absolute, it's, it's one that I've written down and highlighted and, you know, put lots of asterisks by because my company, I'm very lucky, I work for RSA Motability, they're very into well-being, but I think the mistake that they make is trying to come up with all the ideas themselves. And so then they'll implement something and perhaps get a bit cross because people don't respond very well to it because they're basically telling people what, this is the most amazing thing to do for your well-being. And obviously we're all very different and it doesn't necessarily work. So I think going out and asking people what well-being means to them seems so easy, but it's something that we haven't thought about doing. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that, but it's so simple, isn't it? And like you said, Stephen, some of the things that came back were really simple, but unless you ask people, you don't find that out. Actually, there could be some really simple, very easy things, and we can stop spending hours and hours trying to think of perfect solutions. Just go and ask people what it is that it means to them. Absolutely. And well-being, you know, when you've created a well-being group, that's a really fabulous task for them to be involved with you know and really keeps people engaged with the whole organization Stephen do you want to add anything else in there I think organizations are organizations a lot of them are quite are, are very transactional yes. like you you know you you we pay we pay you to come in and do a job of work and you go and that's fine but actually organizations aren't transactional they're communities and I think if you if you approach this with a, with a community view and, a, and an attempt to connect with people, you have far greater success. And that goes back to this, somebody comes up with a really good idea, maybe well-being or something else, and then they're amazed, but it doesn't stick. So why doesn't it stick? Because you haven't asked them. So you haven't given them the capacity to evoke, tell you how they're feeling, 
Actually, you haven't given the autonomy. You're just saying, you now need to do this. And it's, that's another thing I have to fit into my busy day. And so they start to reject it. Or they get a consultancy and you'll say, well, we'll do this, we'll do that, you know, we'll do all this for you. And I'll have all, don't usually ask us if that's what we're wanting. I just like a pair of boots, please. That'd be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Rob, Rob Williams, do you want to share your thinking there? You said, if senior leaders don't make it their business to understand first, they will not engage with the problem, potential solutions, or realize the benefits. Do you want to join us, Rob? Hello. 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 I think it's similar to the last point about what does well-being mean. I think that's really what it comes down to. And often people leading organizations don't move the headspace or the time that it requires to really dive into things. You see this in lots of things, not just related to people or well-being, you'll see it in technical aspects of running a business. They might have a broad idea of a technical part of running their business, not the deep knowledge. So I think that that's often limiting. And if it doesn't come from the top, it's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. I think that's certainly what we found. Yeah, absolutely. It has to be, the senior team have to be involved, have to be ingrained, have to be engaged with it and yeah. realize it's it, how, how, you know, it's fundamental to who, to who we are. It's fundamental to the performance of the business. Mm. Yeah. Stephen. I think a lot of people who hit senior leadership positions, if we're being really kind to them, actually really robust, if we're being unkind to them, they're borderline sociopaths. So they might not necessarily <laughs> be that interested on what's happening further down, you know, it's good enough for me. So I think, but that's a valid point. I think we'll, we'll, we lead busy lives and a lot of senior leaders are under a lot of pressure. So actually finding a way to take some of that pressure off you and have other people delivering, that's really important. So when you've got a group of people who are representative from across the entire organization, it almost becomes self-healing. It's almost... You let it run. And I must confess, when I took on board that group, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to drive this and I'm going to have to do all the work and all and spoon feed it and all the rest of it. Because as you do in a lot of other things that you're having to do, which is part of your day job, but actually once we got up and running, I didn't. It, it just became self-perpetuating because it's like we're now feeling a bit better about this. We actually probably feel that things are improving. Less people are off sick. We'll get more staff to do this, this, and this. We can deliver some of these ideas that we would we want to deliver on. So that's about you need somebody, you need somebody at senior level with a weather eye in this and, and, and driving it for you. Yeah. I think the feeling bit is is an interesting one, isn't it? You definitely feel when you walk into an organization, sometimes even from moving from one department into another, how people are just getting that sense, don't you, as you move around a building? Well, when we did that, the good old days, <laughs> well, it's, well, it's beginning to start like more and more now, which is wonderful. Rodney, you've said well-being in most organisations is growing, but it's ad hoc. Yeah, not really part of the strategic priority. This is something we are passionate about here at Head Torch. Do you want to say something about that, Stephen, about making it a strategic priority? Yeah, I mean, so as I said, Scotland was like uh, 
operational confidence and well-being. Great. And then you would say, well, what are we doing about well-being? And it would go. So it's all very well having it up there. And it has to be, it has to be, it has to be sitting at that in your strategic plan. I think that the, the proof of the pudding is what then falls out of that. What do you, what's your action plan that falls out of that? And I think that's where, you know, you would be hard pressed to go to any organization now and say, you know, they're not interested in, you know, they would actually, well, not interested in well-being. <laughs> it's like, well, really? But I think the proof of it is great. It might sit up at a strategic level, but what then flows? What's your actions that come out of that? You know, so if we hadn't done what we did, we wouldn't have, those are hundred actions that people brought to us. You'd never have found out about it. May I find out about one or two of them in an ad hoc fashion, as, as Rodney's pointed out. Uh, but it was a, we actually formalised the capacity for people to say, I'm not happy about this, but here are the fixes which would make us happy. Yeah. What I mean? Again, they've come up, they've identified the problem, they've come up with a solution, and they've delivered on it. And that becomes that self-perpetuating process. Mm -hmm. But it's the actions that flow out the strategy is really important as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also combined, obviously, with with um, upskilling, you know, people feeling confident to have conversations and all that malarkey. Great. Thank you. Let's just share then some of C Stephen's top tips, folks. So, Stephen, do you want to talk us through just quickly here your, your top yeah. tips? Sure. We, we've covered quite a lot of this. I mean, presenteeism... People might well have heard of that, that phrase. I mean, for me, it's the lights are on, but there's nobody in. I recently worked with a, an organization where their executive teams were doing 14 hour days. Now, actually, I don't, by the time you get to Wednesday, you're no use to anyone. And how do you fit in proper sleep time and connections with friends and family and, and, and eat properly if you're doing that amount of hours? And there's a reason truck drivers have got their hours clipped and why your crew have a, a safe working hours. Because regardless of what we're doing, You'll start to either get very bored and make mistakes if you're doing those long hours, or you'll start to get into that that stress, that burnout as well. So we really need to have to we have to be aware of that. And I think you know that whole culture of long working hours, presenteeism. It's like they, be, they became very competitive. This mob, nobody wanted to be the first person to leave the office. It just became insane. Scottish government, I know, are looking at a four-day week. Civil service are saying it's 20 working hours. I'm not sure they'll get away with that. But, you know, and we need to find a way of making sure people are not working as long as they are. The UK works the longest hours in Europe, least time off, but we are apparently the least productive. There's something going on there. But also, <laughs> really, it's against the, for me, the, the first thing, unless we get to a point where a, a male can carry a child for nine months and breastfeed, we're not going to get true equality here because if you've got all other stuff going on in your in your life, how can you spend 14 hour, uh, uh, hours at work, a, a day at work? So actually, lots of good people don't even put themselves forward to that because it's like, I've got too much going on elsewhere. So we really Let's need move to on to the next one. Great, sorry, just interrupting you there, Stephen. So, incentivising well-being. So how do organisations incentivise things? Well, actually, they do it through promotion. They do it through bonuses. They do it through 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 pay. Mm. It's very narrow. So how do we incentivise exercise at work? And we've got a, you know, we've got a problem with type 2 diabetes 
obesity is the biggest killer now in, in the UK. We need to be, you know, how do we encourage exercise? We put money into a, a, an on-site gym and we encourage people to use it. We introduced what we called FICA, which is the Swedes call it's coffee and cake. So 10 o'clock, everyone down tools in the top corridor where I was. You had a conversation, not about work, about you, about your staff, about your people. That's the way you connect. You found out who this, what football team they supported, what their kids were doing, what floated their boat. You started to build that, that loyalty and that, that connection with them as well. So, you know, walking meetings, getting proper tea breaks, proper lunch breaks, you can incentivize well-being in the workplace. And we, we have a very narrow way of how we incentivize work, and it's very transactional. Great. Improve well-being is your next... Is your next we, point. we covered quite a lot of this because mm -hmm. when we come at something, we ask people to improve, we're actually telling them that they're not good enough. And that's a demotivator. So that whole golden thread, that we brought, when we brought head torch in, that golden thread that ran through an improvement and well-being group was really, really important. And that phrase that I said to my boss, I will improve their well-being. And as a consequence of that, I will improve performance. That should always, you want, if you're in a bind and you have to improve performance, improve well-being first, the rest will follow. You need to be quite brave at that because you'll get a lot of hassle the first few months when then you go back to your boss and say, I mean, I'm still improving their well-being. I'm still massaging a few egos here, but we'll get there. But when you do that, you'll improve performance as well. As and that links into the concept of autonomy. And, and, and evocation as well, to give people the platform that they need to, to thrive. And the final one, you know, and they don't, you don't have to be managing hundreds of people to be a leader. You can, you can be a thought leader, and, you know, to use that phrase, in your organisation by being who you are. And, this, and get rid of the phrase, don't do as I do, do as I say. Do as I do. Do as I do. Be that individual. So, yeah, I did go to the gym in the morning. I quite like going there. I did. I was the one that stopped and started making the coffee. So if you've got... A, one of the great influencers is, is the concept of authority and leadership. So if you're a leader, you have a level of authority. And people will mirror and mimic what you do. So if it's positive behaviour, they will fall in line and, and they'll follow you. If it's negative... You know, so if you're a heavy smoker, don't let them see you know, catch you smoking or anyone out. We don't want mirror that. But if you mirror and mimic, um, if if you if you go and be that positive influence in people, people will follow you. They will mimic. They will mirror and they will mimic what you do. So leadership is really important in this as well. Yeah, definitely. Great. Thank you, Stephen, for those top tips, which Alison has also popped into the chat. Everyone, if you want to copy that over for yourself. So let's just finish up with a few quick fire questions, Stephen. He has no idea what's coming to him, ladies and ladies and gentle people. So the let's see choice. what happens. <laughs> you can choose. You can choose. I don't know about you, but I'm also a great fan of Brene Brown and her podcast. So I've I have a, I've cribbed a bit from her really with this first question, which is, what does vulnerability mean to you? Yes. Well, yeah. I, well, do you know, it's it's being open and honest that you don't have the answer. So actually, none of us have the answer. So as a commander, I had the ops teams, I had CID to my backup. Yes, I'd worked operationally, I'd been in the CID, but 
I didn't know all the answers. And as soon as you turn, because people sometimes look at you as the lead and go, what, what, what's he saying? What's she saying? If you just turn and say, I actually don't know the answer. Lovely. That takes a bit of courage. Next question. <laughs> Great. If you notice someone struggling, what's the first thing you would do? So I would wait for the, an appropriate moment and try and have a conversation with them. I think if you're sitting at certain times, senior level, particularly in remote working, I might speak to the line manager. I might say, go and check on them. Go and give me a, a, an indication that they're okay or if they're not, tell me what you're going to do to support them. Fabulous. So in terms of, in terms of mental health, what message would you give your younger self? Well, I think what I would, yeah, that's a really good one. I think in my 30s, I probably spent too much time at work, in all honesty. And I don't think any of us are going to lie in our deathbed thinking, I should have spent more time at work. So I would probably have spent, you know, I would, I would like do all the overtime and everything. That, I would probably spend slightly less time at work as a younger person. Marvellous. And if you could wave a magic wand at every workplace, in terms of mental health, what would you make happen? I would, I would introduce I, a, a morning or lunchtime meditation. Nice one. Great. Stephen, absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your font of knowledge, your ideas, your thoughts, your top tips, everything. It's just been absolutely uh, eye-opening. I'm sure you will all agree there's a lot to take away there. And a lot of it is simple steps as well. You know, it's simple steps, but it's, it's, about, it's about prioritizing, isn't it? It's a prioritizing what is prioritizing the simple steps. We will be joining together again for a Thursday well-being hour. Our next one is actually going to be in May. So it's the 5th of May for your diaries, folks. The 5th of May from 1 to 2 o'clock. We have Paul Sheeran, the amazing chief exec at Scottish Engineering, will be joining us on that day so please put that in your diaries the podcast for today's session will be coming out in due course probably next week so you'll get notification of that you'll also get notification if you are following us on linkedin you'll get notification and or indeed you will i'm sure you will be on our on our mailing list now that you've joined us today but you'll also be getting the notification about paul's sessions and be able to to sign up to that so do follow us on LinkedIn, as I said, if, you're, if you are not already. And do get in touch with us if you have any thoughts, questions, etc., around what you want to do in your, your workplace in order to create, sustain, maintain a mentally healthy culture. And I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, everyone. Lots of thank yous coming in there into the, into the chat. Please feel free to... Send any other questions to us if you have some lingering ones hereafter or indeed pick up the phone. We're always happy to chat. Thank you very much, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll off to water the plant. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Wellbeing Hour. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. These events take place regularly, so do join us for more. And 
If your organization would like to develop a mentally healthy culture, we'd be happy to work with your senior team, people managers, and frontline staff. Please get in touch at headtorch.org. We look forward to hearing from you.